0: We're going to have a look tonight at Hanukkah. Let's just have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you that we can meet in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you attended the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem in John chapter 10. And we thank you, Lord, that we can remember this event and hopefully learn something from it. So guide me as I speak on this subject in Jesus' name. Okay, so if you haven't noticed, this time is Hanukkah. It's the Feast of Dedication, which is based on the events which took place around 165 BC in the time of the Maccabees. We're going to tell you the story in a moment. It's also a festival which is being celebrated in this neighborhood. So if you go into any house around here in Orthodox houses, you'll probably see a scene like this with the father lighting the servant candle with which he lights the candles on the nine-branched menorah, which is the Hanukkah menorah. The reason they're doing that is because at the dedication of the temple, after it had been defiled by Antiochus, they found not enough oil to light the lamps for the whole period, but the of oil was extended and lasted for eight days, so they have the eight days festival of Hanukkah, which is what's taking place now. And if you go down to Golders Green Station, you'll find one of these Hanukkah menorahs Also one over the road in the North Circular. And you may see people driving around with cars with them on their uh, car roof. And if you look inside the houses, you may see some houses which have the Hanukkah menorah uh, in the window. And that's what's happening. It's a feast of light in a dark time. Some have said it's a kind of substitute for Christmas. Well, I don't think it's intended as that, but it's become something a little bit like that because it's a time when children get gifts and they put light in the their homes, and it's kind of a joyful time to remember what happened at the time of the Maccabees. But what did happen at the time of Maccabees? Um, We have in the Bible, not in the Bible actually, we have two books called the first and second books of Maccabees. They outline the history of the Jewish leaders who led led a rebellion against the Seleucid dynasty from around 175 BC to 134 BC. They're part of the canon of scripture of the Orthodox Church and of the Roman Catholic Church. But in the Protestant churches, and also actually in the Jewish tradition, they're not considered biblical, so they're not part of the the Bible. Um, They're not heretical to read. There's nothing wrong with reading them. They're a historical account. Uh, But they don't have that stamp of authority of the word of God. But the second book of Maccabees ends with the writer saying, I've told my story. If I've told it well, good. If I haven't told it so well, tough. (laughs) That's not exactly what he says, but basically that's the message. Whereas you read in the Bible, the biblical books, it often says, Thus says the Lord. That's the Lord's stamp of authority. Nevertheless, they give an account of what took place. Um, And they're not heretical. There are one or two heretical doctrines, which the Catholic Church has actually brought out of them, including praying for the dead. Uh, for the souls of the dead, which comes in two two Maccabees. But they're good to read, and they give you information about what happened in the time between the end of the, biblical, the Old Testament period, the, the prophecy of Malachi, and the New Testament with the coming of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, what's interesting from the point of view of both Jews and Christians is they tell a story about persecution and faithfulness to God in the face of persecution. They also tell a story about assimilation, which means taking on board the culture of the non-Christians or the non-Jews and bringing that into the faith. And we see that's one of the issues in the story of the the Maccabees, that there are some who take on board the Greek culture called Hellenism and they take on board Greek culture, which defiles them from inside. They also face persecution from outside. So both of those issues, actually, if you look at what's happening in, uh, to both Judaism and to Christians, are relevant to our present situation. One of the problems of the Christian church is both we have persecution, but also we have infiltration uh, with ideas coming in which are contrary to Christianity and are subverting it from the inside. And if you pay close attention, we're going to see some of the ways in which that happens in the story of the Maccabees. Now We're actually going to read some of the passages from Maccabees. Um, I'm going to tell the story and I've got some willing helpers here who are going to come up and help me by reading the passages from the book of Maccabees. So what is Hanukkah about? What happened? Well, in the second century BC, Judea existed between the Egyptian Ptolemaic Kingdom and the Syrian Seleucid Kingdom. These were both branches of Alexander's Greek Empire which divided. So you had Syria to the north, you had Egypt to the south. What have you got between Syria and Egypt? Israel, Judea. And these kings from the north and the south often fought each other. And they often ended up fighting each other over the territory of Israel or Judea. And this northern king, uh, the king of uh, the north, Seleucid king, uh, took control of Judea in around 200 BC. And out of him came a man who is infamous in Jewish circles called Antiochus, the fourth or Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, Antiochus sometimes known as the Madman. Uh, he became the ruler of the Seleucid Empire in 175 BC and he was a great enemy of religious traditional Judaism. In fact, he suppressed it. But also he, was, he encouraged Jewish people to adopt Greek lifestyle and culture. And many, Jew, many Jews in Judea actually did that in order to gain economic and political influence They took on uh, Jewish-Greek customs. They avoided circumcision. They advocated abolishing Jewish religious laws. So 1 Maccabees begins with these words. Chris, your turn.
1: (laughs) The wicked ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, son of King Antiochus III of Syria, was a descendant of one of Alexander's generals, Antiochus Epiphanes had been a hostage in Rome before he became king of Syria in the year 137. At that time, there appeared in the land of Israel a group of traitorous Jews who had no regard for the law and who had a bad influence on many of our people. They said, let's come to terms with the Gentiles, for our refusal to associate with them has brought us nothing but trouble. This proposal appealed to many people, and some of them became so enthusiastic about it that they went to the king and received from him permission to follow Gentile customs. They built in Jerusalem a stadium like those in the Greek cities. They had surgery performed to hide their circumcision, abandoned the holy covenant, started associating with Gentiles, and did all sorts of other evil things.
0: Okay, so that's assimilation. They began to take on the Greek customs and to abandon the Jewish ones. And the Jewish ones were given by God. So they're now abandoning God's covenant and taking on board the customs of the Greeks. Now, Antiochus um, looked at the Judaism and he saw that they had a high priest. And he treated the high priest just as a kind of local appointee, which he had then control. He, he decided to take over the appointment of the king, the high priest within his realm. Now, as far as the Judaism is concerned, the high priest had to be appointed by God of the line of Aaron and was not to be someone who would be appointed by by an outsider, by a Gentile in particular. And we read in the story that Antiochus appointed a high priest named Jason, who was a Hellenized Jew, in other words, he was taking on Greek customs, who promptly abolished the Jewish theocracy. He was followed by a man called Menelaus, who had the rightful high priest Onanias murdered. After Menelaus' brother stole sacred items from the temple, a civil war ensued, between the Hellenized Jews and the religious Jews. Antiochus subsequently attacked Jerusalem, pillaged the temple, killed or captured many of the women and children. He banned traditional Jewish practice, outlawing Jewish sacrifices, Sabbaths, feasts, and circumcision. He established altars to Greek gods upon which unclean animals were sacrificed. He desecrated the Jewish temple, and possession of Jewish scriptures became a capital offense. Stephen's going to read to us now from 1 Maccabees, chapter 1.
2: Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and that all should give up their particular customs. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king. Many even from Israel gladly adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. And the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices, and to drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane Sabbaths and festivals, to defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine and other unclean animals, And to leave their sons uncircumcised. They they were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane, so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. He added, And whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. In such words, he wrote to his whole kingdom. He appointed inspectors over all the people and commanded the towns of Judah to offer sacrifice town by town. Many of the people, everyone who forsook the law, joined them, and they did evil in the land. They drove Israel into hiding in every place of refuge they had. Now on the 15th day of Shizlev, in the 140th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. They also built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah, and offered insets at the doors of the houses and in the streets. The books of the law they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone who found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. They kept using violence against Israel, against those who were found month after month in the towns. On the 25th day of the month, they offered a sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar of burnt offering, According to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families and those who circumcised them. And they hung the infants from their mothers' necks. But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant. And they did die. Very great wrath came upon Israel."
0: Notice that the king told, wrote a letter saying the kingdom that all should be one, people. All is one. Get everybody together in a one-world religion and get rid of those who want to keep God's word. He also put up a desolating sacrilege. Also could be known as the abomination of desolation that Jesus spoke of in the book of Daniel. So Antiochus did away with the legitimate high priest. He installed a puppet high priest called Jason, and this high priest brought in foreign customs and led the people away from keeping the commands of the law. Now, meanwhile, in a small rural village called Moda'in, an elderly priest named Mattathias lived with his five sons, John, Simon, Judas, Eleazar, and Jonathan. Modi'in is somewhere, in modern terms, between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Just off the main highway from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, there's a modern town of Modi'in, about 10 or 15 miles south of Jerusalem. Okay, so these uh, people were known as the Hasmoneans. This family, more frequently, has been called the Maccabeans. Maccabees means the hammerer, or the hammer. So they developed hammer blows. In 167, Antiochus sent some of his soldiers to Modiin to compel the Jewish inhabitants to make sacrifices to the pagan gods. Mattathias, as leader in the city, was commanded by the officers to be the first person to offer a sacrifice as an example to the rest of the people. He refused with a powerful speech, which is found in 1 Maccabees chapter 2, verse 15.
3: King's officials said to Matthias, you are a respected leader in this town and you have the support of your sons and relatives. Why not be the first one to do what the king has commanded? All the Gentiles, the people of Judah and all the people left in Jerusalem have already done so. If you do, you and your sons will be honored with the title of friends of the king and you will be rewarded with silver and gold and many gifts. Matthias answered in a loud voice, I don't care if every Gentile in this empire has obeyed the king and yielded to the command to abandon the religion of his ancestors. My children, my relatives, and I will continue to keep the covenant that God made with our ancestors. With God's help, we we will never abandon the law or disobey his commands. We will not obey the king's decree and we will not change our way of worship in the least.
0: So fearing violence against the people for Mattathias' refusal, another Jew volunteered to offer the sacrifices to the pagan gods in place of Mattathias. But Mattathias killed this Jewish man as well as the soldiers of the king. He then destroyed the altar to the pagan gods, after which he, his sons, and a number of followers fled to the mountainous wilderness. These men formed a large guerrilla warfare army and soon began to launch raids against the towns of the land, tearing down the pagan altars, killing the officials of Antiochus, and also executing those Jews who were worshipping the pagan
3: gods. But Antiochus was still not satisfied. He even dared to enter the holiest temple in all the world, guided by Menelaus, who had become a traitor both to his religion and to his people. With his filthy and unholy hands, Antiochus swept away the sacred objects of worship and the gifts which other kings had given to increase the glory and honor of the temple. He was so thrilled with his conquest that he did not realize that the Lord had let his holy temple be defiled because of the sin of the people of Jerusalem had made him angry for a while. If the people of Jerusalem had not been involved in so many sins, Antiochus would have been punished immediately and prevented from taking such a foolish action. He would have suffered the same fate, Herodias, Hel- who was sent by King Seleucius to inspect the treasury. But the Lord did not choose his people for the sake of his temple. He established his temple for the sake of his people. So the temple shared in the people's suffering, but also later shared in their prosperity. The Lord abandoned it when he became angry, but restored it when his anger had cooled down.
0: So Mattathias died in 166 BC just as the revolt was beginning to gain momentum. He left his son Judas in charge of the rebel forces. And even though they were greatly outnumbered, Judas and his rebels defeated general after general in battle, winning decisive victories against overwhelming odds. The rebels won a tremendous victory south of Mitzpah against a combined army of 50,000 troops. The people of Israel gave Judas the name Maccabeus because of his success in hammering the enemy forces into the ground. Daniel.
4: Judas Maccabeus and his friends went secretly from village to village until they had gathered a force of about 6,000 Jewish men who had remained faithful to their religion. They begged the Lord to help his people, now trampled underfoot by all nations, to take pity on the temple, now defied by pagans, and to have mercy on Jerusalem, now destroyed and almost leveled to the ground. They also asked the Lord to show his hatred of evil by taking revenge on those people those who were murdering his people, mercilessly slaughtering innocent children and saying evil things against the Lord. When Judas had finally organized his forces, the Gentiles were unable to stand against him because the Lord's anger against Israel had now turned to mercy. Judas would make sudden attacks on towns and villages and burn them. He captured strategic positions and routed many enemy troops finding that he was most successful at night. People everywhere spoke of his bravery.
0: So Antiochus, who had underestimated the scope of this revolt, now realized the serious nature of the rebellion in Israel. He dispatched Lysias, the commander-in-chief of the Seleucid army, along with 60,000 infantrymen and 5,000 cavalry, to utterly destroy the Jews. This vast army was additionally commanded by two generals serving under Lysias, Nicanor, and Gorgias. The powerful army came against Judas, who fought with a force of only 10,000 poorly-equipped rebels in the town of Emmaus. He prayed to God for strength and deliverance, and God answered, and they won a huge victory over the Seleucid army. Subsequently, the Maccabees marched into Jerusalem, cleansed the temple, and resumed traditional Jewish religious practice. The festival of Hanukkah commemorates the cleansing and rededication of the Jewish temple. Judas' brother Jonathan became the new high priest after the rededication of the temple and ultimately succeeded Judas as commander of the army. Brother Simon assumed control from 142 to 135 BC followed by Simon's son John Hyrcanus. With the death of Simon, the last, of the, ma- uh, the, uh, the last son of Mattathias, the Maccabean revolt came to an end. The author concludes his narrative of 1 Maccabees in 1 Maccabees with these words, which Ralph's going to read to us.
5: Judas Maccabeus and his followers, under the leadership of the Lord, recaptured the temple and the city of Jerusalem. They tore down the altars which foreigners had set up in the marketplace and destroyed the other places of worship that had been built they purified the temple and built a new altar then with new fire started by striking flint they offered sacrifice for the first time in two years burned incense lighted the lamps and set out the sacred loaves after they had done all this they lay face down on the ground and prayed that the Lord would never again let such disasters strike them. They begged him to be merciful when he punished them for future sins and not hand them over any more to barbaric pagan Gentiles. They rededicated the temple on the 25th day of the month of Kislev, the same day of the same month on which the temple had been desecrated by the Gentiles the happy celebration lasted eight days like the Feast of Booths and the people remembered how only a short time before they had spent the Feast of Booths wandering like wild animals in the mountains and living in caves but now Carrying green palm branches and sticks, decorated with ivy, they paraded around, singing grateful praises to him who had brought about the purification of his own temple. Everyone agreed that the entire Jewish nation should celebrate this festival each
0: year. And so ends the story of Hanukkah. And of course, we see that they are still celebrating the Feast of Hanukkah. I might think, well, that's a Jewish story. What has it got to do with us? We're not Jewish, well, some of us are. But it is a story which has a universal meaning. And also, it was very important, actually, that the Maccabees defeated Antiochus and the Seleucid kings. If they hadn't done, then Judah would have remained under the control of the Greeks. And you'd have seen a erosion of Judaism so that by the time Jesus came, you could have had no more Jewish practice, no more temple, uh, but paganism taking over and the loss of Jewish identity. So for God's purpose, for the Messiah to come, actually the Maccabees had to win the battle against the Seleucids. Uh, And also a story really of the oppression of Jewish people, which has a relevance to what's happening today and has happened through history and of resistance against their enemies. And as I said earlier, it has a story which has relevance to believers in Jesus because it speaks about persecution of God's people, and it speaks about the danger also that they will assimilate or lose their identity as a result. And we can see that the two things which are happening in Christianity today is we have persecution of Christians, opposition to the gospel, but also we have Christianity uh, merging with the world and becoming increasingly assimilated into a world which is actually basically anti-Christian, and we can see that the Greek uh, practice of uh, the Maccabees of the of the Seleucids of uh, were, was clearly against the God of the Bible. Now, these are passages which we read from, which are actually not in the Bible. As I said, they're in the apocryphal part of the Bible. Uh, But there are passages in the Bible which prophesy this. And this is another interesting subject, so we can look at that. There are two passages in the Old Testament which prophesy the events we've just read. One is in the book of Daniel, chapter 11. Another is in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9. And we have one passage, the only passage in the Bible which actually calls, talks about the uh, (coughs) the Feast of Hanukkah by name, you'll find in which book of the Bible? Anyone know? John's Gospel, (laughs) so it's in the New Testament, and Jesus is walking in the temple at the time of the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah, and it was winter. So we're going to have a look at all those passages and see what we can learn from them. You go to Daniel chapter 11, very interesting passage. Daniel chapter 11 is one of the really difficult passages to look at, but also one of the most interesting in the prophecy of Daniel. Uh, Daniel 11 describes in such detail the events which were going to take place uh, at the time of the wars of the kings of the north of Syria against the kings of the south, Egypt, over Judea, uh, which we spoke about earlier, and also about the emergence of this one, Antiochus Epiphanes, who had become a persecutor of the Jews, and the rising of the Maccabees who had come against him. And it's so specific in its details that many skeptics have said, well, Daniel must have written this prophecy not at the time of when he was prophesying in Babylon, about 500 BC, but he must have written it around 165 BC by someone who was different from Daniel. And you'll find that if you go to some liberal Bible colleges, they'll tell you that Daniel, this was written by another person, not Daniel the prophet, sometime after the event took place which is taking away from the fact that God actually knows the end from the beginning and God's able to give prophecies in the Bible about things which had not yet taken place at the time they were given. Uh, by the same token, actually, Daniel should have been written round about now because he gives prophecies about what's happening now, <laughs> which obviously is not the case. Now, so verses, if you look at Daniel twenty 11, I'm not going to read it all. It begins with, uh, actually, account of Alexander the Great, and his uh, war with the Persians, and how Alexander conquered Persia. And he then died, and his empire was divided into four, okay, something which hadn't happened at the time of Daniel, but which happened afterwards. Uh, after it was divided into four, as we said, the four parts of the Greek empire, the most significant for this story, are the Syrian one, which is to the north, and the Egyptian one, Ptolemies, which is to the south. Verses 21 to 2030 describe the wars of the Seleucids in Syria and the Ptolemies in Egypt with Israel in the middle. Sometimes Israel's in league with one, sometimes they're in conflict, but sometimes they're in league with each other, but sometimes they're in conflict. A bit like the Arab world today. uh, They are also fighting over that little strip of land on the east of the Mediterranean, which is the land of Israel. And it's remarkable how Everybody wants a little piece of Israel, don't they? They want to take control of it, and yet God wants it to be in the hands of his people, Israel. Uh, Also rising in the background is a third force, which is going to emerge as Rome. And actually the Maccabees did make some kind of a treaty with Rome because they thought they would help them against the Greeks, which actually turned out to be not such a great idea because some time later in 63 BC, the Romans entered into the land as well. And by the time you get to Jesus, the Rome is occupying and incorporating uh, Judea into the Roman Empire. Now, the most interesting part is uh, <clears throat> round about verse 20. And it tells us about somebody who is clearly Antiochus. Put some of those verses up there. It says, There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. That's the one who comes before him, actually. And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. He shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The last part of there is about Antiochus. And he did come in peaceably. It's another interesting little detail uh, that this one comes in peaceably, but he ends up as a destroyer. That has, again, a relevance to what's taking place in the last days, that one will come in peaceably, bring a peace treaty to Israel, and then end up as the destroyer. It goes on, he should enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province. He should do what his fathers have not done. So his forefathers, nor his forefathers, he should disperse among them plunder, spoil and riches, and he should devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. And verse 30, so he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant, and forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. So here we have the abomination of desolation. see also that he comes against uh, the people who are faithful to God, but also he has people who are for him who forsake the Holy Covenant. Otherwise, you're going to find some people who be his allies who will join with him in this battle. And forces by him will defile the sanctuary fortress. So he's going to defile the... That's actually talking about the temple. And he should defile the temple, and which he did by erecting the abomination of desolation. He also put up images to Greek gods, particularly to Zeus, in the temple. So you have this one who comes in, and if you are following attention, you can see that that Lines up pretty much with what we read in the book of Maccabees. We then find that there is a group of people who resist him, who are the Maccabees. Verse 32 in Daniel 11, it says, Then those who do wickedly against the covenant he shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. There will be people who go against the covenant, who go against God, who he corrupts with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong. There are going to be some people who are faithful to God, who are going to be strong, and are going to do great exploits. Those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. Some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, good it is still for the appointed time." So we read in history that uh, this ties up with what it says in the book of Daniel. Antiochus put his garrison in Jerusalem. He forbade Jewish sacrifice. He set up his abomination of desolation in the holy place. He forbade Jewish sacrifices. He established revelry with harlots within the temple of Funkvines itself. He set up his idol god Zeus on the altar burnt offering of the God of Israel. And he corrupted the religious officials. So you had corrupt officials operating within the temple itself. It says he came in peaceably, but his intentions were ultimately hostile. So it is with the Antichrist at the end of days. Find also that there were two factions who arose at this time. One was friendly to Antiochus. The other was committed to his destruction. The apostate Jews were flattered, corrupted, and used by Antiochus for his ends, not their ends. The faithful Jews, including the family of Mattathias, did exploits for their god. And the exploits of the greatly outnumbered Maccabees are stories, indeed, of zeal and divine blessing. So they had a conflict. says also, when you read through Maccabees, you find that they had a difficult war. They had imposters, apostates, and seditious Jews, and others using them, some undermining them but they managed to prevail in the end because they had faith in God. So the lesson for us, I guess, is that when you see this kind of practice coming in through Antiochus, there are going to be some people who are going to join with him. who are going to betray the true faith and some who are going to go against it. Do you see anything like that happening in the world today? Within the church? Even within Judaism? You can see some who will assimilate, some who will take on board the practices which are wrong and some who will resist it. Now, if you follow through in Daniel, he actually makes a connection between Antiochus and the coming Antichrist. So read from verse 36 onwards. Uh, it merges with Antiochus, but it goes beyond Antiochus to some future king who's going to do something in the same manner as Antiochus. Remember that Jesus in Matthew 24 said that when you see the abomination of desolation standing in its holy place, Let the reader understand, he says, also this is spoken of in the book of Daniel. So Jesus speaks about a future coming, which is going to bring about some abomination of desolation. He said, if you want to learn about it, look back at what happened in the time of the Maccabees with Antiochus and the Maccabees who opposed them. So in 37, 36, it says, then the king shall do according to his own will. He should exalt and magnify himself above every god shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. What has been determined shall be done. He shall neither regard the God of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honour a God of fortresses and a God which his fathers did not know he shall honour with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God which he shall acknowledge, advance all its glory and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. Now, in many ways, that did apply to Antiochus, but it goes beyond that and speaks about the Antichrist in the last days, particularly the fact that he says he's going to exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and he's going to speak blasphemies against the god of gods. Look, in 2 Thessalonians, you'll find that it says there that that's exactly what the Antichrist or the man of sin is going to do. He's going to exalt himself above every god and cause himself to be worshipped as god. Not just against the Christian God, he's against every God. Here it says he's going to be against every God. He's going to bring people under his control and he's going to exalt himself above them all. So there's a connection between all of this. And Antiochus in history is a type of the Antichrist. And something similar is going to happen to what happened in Antiochus' today in the coming days. What will it be? A lot of speculation about this. What is the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place? Is it already there? Um, is it something which is going to come in the future? Uh, got to work out also where is the holy place? Now, from the point of view of the Bible, the holy place has to be the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Uh, is there any abomination of desolation standing in the holy place today? Well, there is a couple of mosques... And in one of them, the Dome of the Rock, which is over where probably where the temple was, uh, there is a text which says, say not that God has a son, and pronounces a curse on anyone who does say this. So standing there in the holy place, there is a building which actually puts a curse on those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Kind of interesting. (laughs) I'm not saying that is the abomination of desolation. It would seem there is some future event which is going to take place in the Great Tribulation period. Whether there'll be a rebuilt Jewish temple at the place after some one of the wars, the Gog War of Gog and Magog, another interesting question which I'm not going to say for sure, but is possibly in the agenda. It does seem that from the scriptures there will be a some form of temple which will be rebuilt. Now, what form of temple it will be, we don't know, but there is at the present time even a coming together of world religions when the uh, treaty between Israel and the UAE was established, they actually built a interfaith building in, I think it was in Dubai or where it was, one of those places anyway, Uh, where? Abu Dhabi, Dhabi, that's right, yeah, Abu Dhabi, which was a place with a mosque, a synagogue and a church, all coming together for one one religious building. Is it possible something like that will come out? And then the Antichrist goes in and says, well, actually, you guys should be worshipping me and he puts his image in the place, which is the abomination of desolation. That's speculation, but it's kind of interesting, and you can see that there are forces today which are working uh, to bring in peaceably some kind of a peace agreement, out of which will come some defilement and some desolation, which will be happening in the Great Tribulation period. So we have a connection between Daniel chapter 11 and what we've just read from Maccabees, and also what we read in the prophetic scriptures about the second coming of Jesus. We also have a connection in the book of Zechariah, uh, particularly in verse <coughs> excuse me, in verse 13, where it says, "I bent for I bent Judah my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man." Now, in the book of Zechariah, one of the last of the prophets, uh, he speaks about a time coming when there's going to be a conflict between the sons of Zion and the sons of Greece. Uh, Zechariah chapter 9 is actually a very interesting passage altogether. I won't go into it in detail, but in the first eight verses of Zechariah, it describes Alexander the Great's conquest of the Middle East. It describes how he went to to Damascus, to Tyre, went down the coastal strip of uh, what is now Israel, down to Gaza, and then when he turned up from Gaza, he went up to Jerusalem. You can read that in Zechariah chapter 9. As he was rising up to Jerusalem, he had a vendetta against Jerusalem because they hadn't paid him a tribute and he was about to slaughter the people in Jerusalem. Uh, The high priest in Jerusalem, who at that time was a faithful man, uh, he prayed about this and God appeared to him in a dream and told him to go and stand on a promontory outside Jerusalem in his high priest gear and wait for Alexander to march up the road, which he did. Alexander marched up the road, and when he saw the high priest, he got off his horse and went and bowed down before him. At which point his Greek soldiers were very surprised, why are you bowing down before this Jewish man? And Alexander said, before I set out on my uh, conquest of what turned out to be Persia, I saw this man in a dream, and he said to me, go forth and you will conquer Persia. Uh, and so he didn't go and slaughter Jerusalem. He went into Jerusalem, and according to Josephus, the high priest Uh, got out the book of Daniel and showed uh, Alexander that he was going to win against the the Persians. Uh, Some some people dispute that story, but it's in Josephus and it's kind of interesting. Uh, And it's said that verse 8 of Zechariah, which says, I will encamp around my house, this is God speaking, because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns, no more shall the oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. That's speaking about Alexander and the event I've just spoken to you about. The next verse is the verse from Zechariah, which you may know, or you should know, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Anybody heard that scripture? Where will you find it? In the New Testament, especially in the book of Matthew, describing Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus coming lowly on a donkey, Uh, bringing salvation. comes after the verse about Alexander. Jesus is now the very opposite of Alexander. He's coming lowly, bringing salvation. Then it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That prophecy actually speaking about the second coming of Jesus. So you have in two verses prophecy about the first coming of Jesus Coming into Jerusalem and prophecy about the second coming of Jesus when he's going to bring peace to the nations, separated by a great valley of time. Reminds you that prophecy can speak about different times in just between two verses. Then you have the bit about the Greeks. And it says, Also, as for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare I will store double to you. For I bent Judah my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Now he goes back to giving a short-term prophecy about the sons of hope, who are the Jewish people who are now in captivity, and says that I'm going to raise you up against the, the Greeks, and I'm going to give you the victory. What happens in the time of the Maccabees. And if you read on to it, it describes the victory which the Lord made for his people. Yeah, I'll read the next verse. It said, And the Lord shall be seen over them. His arrows shall go forth like lightning. The Lord will blow the trumpet and will go with whirlwinds from the south. The Lord will defend them. They shall devour them and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood of like basins, like the corners of the altar. The Lord God will save them in that hour as the flock of his people. They shall be like the jewels of the crown, lifted like a banner over his land. How great is its goodness, how great is its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive, and the new wine, the young women. So the Lord will give the victory to his people. So you have there a prophecy which many people say is actually about the event we've just seen about the Maccabees defeating the Greeks. Reminding us also that prophecy works on different levels and speaks about different times. And sometimes, even within the same passage, you've got a number of different events being spoken about. Interestingly, also, in the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 11, it speaks about what's called the idle shepherd, and it speaks specifically about three shepherds who the Lord loathes and will cut off. Uh, In the story of the Maccabees, there are three false shepherds, Jason, Simon, and Menelaus, who the Lord cuts off. So you have a connection with Zechariah and the events which are going to take place. So what about the war of the sons of Zion and the sons of Greece? Does that have any significance? Sons of Zion, obviously, are the Jewish people. The sons of Greece are, obviously, the Greeks. No offense to Cathy. but uh, who are the people who've had the most influence upon our society? The Jews and the Greeks. Uh, If you look at Western society in particular, the influences which have most shaped Western society go back to intellectually, go back to the Jewish people and to the Greeks, And the Greeks have an influence which went way beyond their time. The Greeks had the main influence on the Romans, by the way. Most of Roman culture is a recycling of Greek culture. Uh, Interestingly, if you look in the prophecy of Daniel in the image of the Nebuchadnezzar, the Greeks actually are in the loins of the, the image. The loins are the reproductive part of a man. And so it says that the Greeks are going to reproduce their ideas. They're going to have ideas which are going to reproduce in different cultures down through the century. great influence. But Alexander conquered. He didn't want, just want to conquer nations. He also wanted to conquer them with Greek philosophy. Set up Alexandria in Egypt with its great library, which is one of the great libraries of the ancient world, as a center for teaching Greek culture. And right through his conquests, his idea was to center sent. Greek culture, Greek influences to influence those nations. Wanted a library and a gymnasium in every Greek city, city of the Greek Empire. <clears throat> and so we have this influence. And of course Greek thought was in the Roman Empire. Greek philosophy reproduced itself through philosophers like Aristotle. And the New Testament ended up being written in Greek not in Latin, which was the Roman Empire, but in the Greek because Greek was the dominant culture and writing it in Greek meant it could be circulated much easier. So you have this influence of Greek, philosophy, us. Interesting man called Heraclitus or Heraclitus. He was alive in the first half of the 5th century BC. He was famous for making three statements. Everything flows... You can never step twice into the same stream. Man is the measure of all things. So what does that mean? (laughs) Actually adds up to a humanistic philosophy. Everything flows. There are no absolutes. Everything is relative, like the water in the stream, which changes all the time. You never step into the same stream twice because the water is always flowing by and is different water every time you flow into it. As the water in the stream changes, so the values change in new circumstances. So even God can change. So you can change your image of God according to the circumstances in which you live. So you have this idea of a changing world that you have to adapt to. that the Bible says, I, the Lord, change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. And the Bible image of God is actually of God, the rock, which doesn't change, not God, the stream, which is continually changing. Can you see there, there's something of the conflict between the Jews and the Greeks. Also, man is the measure of all things. That means man is the center, so it's a humanistic idea that man is the, his own God. Denial of any moral power which is superior to that of humans. If you look at Greek religion, the Greek gods are actually superhumans, aren't they? They're not gods, God in the true sense. So you actually have Greek philosophy which is in conflict with the biblical revelation. And there are a lot of good things which came out of Greek philosophy. We have democracy which came out of it. Well, I think that's a good thing? I don't know. But um, we have a lot of things which we owe to the Greeks and a way of thinking which is logical and which was constructive, which was a great advance on paganism for sure. And it has an influence on much of European thought, including much of Christianity. Some early Christian writers like Oregon, Augustine, uh, married Greek philosophy with Christianity. And particularly in the Roman Catholic Church, a man called Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, uh, brought in much of Greek philosophy and l- merged it with, with Catholicism. <laughs> Even in Judaism, we find that the same thing happened. I got this quote from the Aish website. That's an uh, Orthodox Jewish website. from A man called Rabbi Lopiansky. It says, there was a long period in Jewish history from Rabbeinu Saadia Gaon, the 10th century, through the Rishonim up until the Remak and the Uri, the 16th century, when the main thrust of religious thought was based on philosophy. Although the conclusions of the rabbis' reasoning were certainly different from those of Greek philosophers, their terminology and approach were definitely based on philosophy. The great Maimonides, one of the big influences in Judaism, he said, in all matters sub-metaphysical, Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, is correct. Aristotle has almost reached the rank of a prophet. So if you look at that, these are two of the foremost influences, Aquinas and and, and (coughs) Maimonides, two of the big influences on Roman Catholicism and on Judaism, both acknowledge that they've received a lot from Greek philosophy and brought it into their religion. Kind of interesting. And you've got a dominance of much of the Greek worldview in the Western world, a man-centered philosophy, humanism, dominant spirit behind our educational system, Values in the media, evolution, relative values. If it feels right, do it. Have a view in homosexuality, which is that it's okay, which was also a view in Greek philosophy. And the idea that if it seems right to you, then do it. Conflicting with the biblical view. Uh, And it goes back to the fool. And you've got this kind of new world order which we have, bringing together a kind of humanistic philosophy with some religious ideas and bringing them into one. Remember, one of the things Antiochus said was he wanted all people to be as one, so to bring together this one world view and this one world religious system. And you see it in even famous religious leaders. <coughs> um, one of the most influential modern Jewish. Leaders was, he's died now, but Rabbi Jonathan Sachs wrote a book called Dignity of Difference. And then he said, in heaven there is truth, on earth there are truths, plural. So there's truth in heaven, but on earth there are truths. Uh, Clayton was telling us this morning that in the Bible sense, there is one truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Uh, and we used to look at the Church of England Uh, bishops saying that a loving union of homosexuals committed to each other is preferable to an unloving marriage between heterosexuals. That's a typical piece of Greek thinking. And you've got this political correctness, this imposition of humanism on society, rejecting biblical revelation, which will ultimately lead to the suppression and persecution of Christianity, and biblical Christianity in the War of the Sons of Zion, and the sons of Greece in our generation. you think that's a bit fanciful, or is it actually what's happening today? So you've got this kind of coming together. And we have to ask ourselves, do we take man as the measure of all things and the ultimate authority, or do we believe that the revelation of God is the ultimate authority, and that this book contains an unchanging truth uh, of our God, who is the rock, who doesn't change not who is a stream which is constantly changing. And do we change God's revealed truth in the Bible or do we tell the world that they need to change and repent and accept the kingdom of God? Do we put man as the head of the church and call him a pope or an apostle? Or do we place Jesus Christ in the highest place and make him the head of the church? I would say that today, Western society and Christendom, as well as one has to say, much of Judaism and even what's happening in Israel, you see a ship without a compass heading for the rocks because they've actually taken away from the truth of the word of God and substituted with this relative morality, relative truths, which come from Greek philosophy. God's raising up a minority who will be the sons of Zion to wage spiritual war against the sons of Greece. Again, not to be against the Greeks as people because we love them and they've actually contributed many significant things to our society, but against that spirit of humanism, which and relative morality, which goes against the spirit of the Bible. Okay, now let's uh, just conclude this talk with a the one mess the one passage in the Bible which actually mentions the Feast of Hanukkah. Obviously, not in the Old Testament because it hadn't happened by the time the Old Testament canon was finished. So, Malachi, the last book of the Bible, was written long before the events of Hanukkah but it had happened by the time of Jesus and by the time of Jesus we find that if you remember in the last passage which Ralph read to us it says that they the Jewish people should celebrate the feast of Hanukkah from year to year so by the time of Jesus we find that's what they were doing Uh, John chapter 10 and verse 22 says now it was the feast of dedication Dedication in Hebrew is Hanukkah in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Hanukkah comes in the winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Messiah, Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, no, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness to me, but if you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I will give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Okay, some of the really radical statements which Jesus makes about himself. He tells us here that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they know me." So, he's distinguishing between the people who are not his sheep and the people who are his sheep. Not saying here, by the way, that the Jews are not his sheep. He's just saying that amongst the Jews, there are people who are not his sheep and the people who are his sheep, just as there are amongst the Gentiles. People who are his sheep and people who are not his sheep. People who hear his voice and people who don't hear his voice. People who accept him and people who reject him. He's saying that uh, those who follow him will receive eternal life. They shall never perish. Uh, So he's saying to the people who follow him that they're going to receive a life which is not just better for this life, but is better for all eternity. And the good news I have to tell you is that if you have accepted Jesus as your Messiah, you have eternal life, and that nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Messiah Jesus. And Jesus says also, they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So if you have committed your life to Jesus, then he's saying that nothing is going to separate you I no one's going to be able to snatch you out of his hand. A doctrine, a verse which speaks very much on the doctrine of eternal security of the born-again believer. If you've been born again, you can't be unborn again. If you've been adopted into the family, you can't be kicked out if you don't perform well enough. If you don't perform well enough, you can repent and get right with God and continue in your faith, but you're not going to be kicked out of the family. And Jesus says that I am the father of one. And he says that, My hand is around you, the Father's hand is around you, and if my hand is around you, and my Father's hand is around you, then you have eternal security in the kingdom of God. And he also says here, I, my Father, are one. In other words, I am one with the Father. So if you take Jesus as your authority, then he's the answer to all of this opposition, if you like, what we've been talking about, answer to the persecution, answer to assimilation, and he's the answer to the whole war of the the Greeks and the the Jews, which I've been talking about. Also, in the previous verses, he's talking about himself as the true shepherd who will lead his people to life and lay down his life for them. In talking about this, he may have been reminded of the idol shepherd of the story of the Maccabees, the hireling, the ones who are in power in the tradition of the false high priests of Jason, Simon, and Menelaus. They feed off the flock instead of feeding the flock. Uh, and when their going gets tough, they desert them. Jesus' aim is to feed the flock, and he's going to be with them always, never going to leave them, and he's going to lay down his life in order to redeem us. The true shepherd, Jesus, will lay down his life voluntarily. And verse 18 is a very relevant one, (coughs) where he says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on myself, I have power to lay it down, I have power to take it again, this command I have from my Father. Very good verse if you find people who tell you that the Jews killed Jesus. No, (laughs) Jesus died of his own free will as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, and we all killed Jesus because he died for our sins, and we're all sinners, whether we're Jewish or Gentile. So Jesus here is affirming his role as the true shepherd who's going to die for his people. And as there were hirelings in the temple in the days of the Maccabees, in Jesus' day there will also be hirelings, as there were in the Jewish religious establishment, and as there are in the church today that is called by the name of Jesus. And you'll find that some of these people are amongst the most vociferous opponents of the faith. I've had quite a few discussions about Christianity with enemies of Christ. Some of the worst have actually been with what I would call apostate Christians in the church, who attack the true faith in Jesus Christ. And basically, they will hand you over to the devil. But the true cross, the true Jesus Christ, sets you free from him. So just in conclusion, John 10 describes Yeshua at the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of Hanukkah. He has power, and he has the power to give us eternal life. And he is the one who is actually the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies, which you have in the Hebrew scriptures. And so he also is the one who prophesied the destruction of the temple and the regathering of the Jewish people in the last days. And he's the one who is coming again this time, not as a suffering servant, but as the King of kings and Lord of lords with all power. Before him, there'll be another kind of Antiochus, the antichrist who will bring about the abomination of desolation in the holy place. When Jesus comes back, he will sweep it away and set up the true temple in the Millennial Kingdom and reign for a thousand years, bringing peace and justice to the world. Meantime, we have all the troubles taking place in the Middle East and Israel, which are four cases of the second coming. We have all the affliction of the world, all the bringing in of false doctrines into the church and into the world. But Jesus Christ remains the rock upon whom we can build our lives, and he doesn't change. He's not like the stream which you walk into, and it's always changing, He is the rock of our salvation. Build your lives on the rock and you'll stand in all the troubles which are coming on the world today because he is the the one who is true and who is eternal and who's given his life for us in order to redeem us. So we conclude that with a few thoughts about Jesus. Uh, In a way, what I've said about Jesus doesn't really relate to the story of the Maccabees, although in some ways it does. But it tells you that he is the true shepherd. He's the one who is coming to redeem us, who has come to redeem us. And he's coming soon to judge the world in righteousness. So believe in him and look up as you see all the troubles in the world because he's coming soon. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer. And I'll hand back to Andy. Lord, we do thank you for the things which have happened in the past. Tell us something about you. Thank you, Lord, that you did preserve Israel in the days of the Maccabees. You preserved a people who would have a measure of faith, would not be overwhelmed by false philosophy, and will prepare the way for the coming of Jesus the Messiah into the temple to bring the truth of the word of God. We thank you, Lord, that today we do have the Lord Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who can bring us into the kingdom of God and help us to be ready for your return. So we commit our lives to you, and we thank you for your truth and your word and your Holy Spirit. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.